Well, again, good morning, and we're glad you're here. And just as, as Jonathan said, that was Jonathan Davis, one of our pastors that was leading worship. But if you're new, if this is your first time, a special welcome to you. If there's anything that we can do for you or questions that we can answer, please let us know. And um, if you have a child with you and need child care during the service at any point, that's available on the other side of our building, just to let you know of that resource. But main thing is, we're glad that you're here. And my name is Brian Haybig. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we have started a new series that we're looking at in our time of the sermons. We're looking at a letter in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul, and it's his letter to the Colossians. We just started this last week. So we're going to pick up in the first chapter in verse 9. If you don't have a Bible, you can just follow in the bulletin. That's the whole text. I mentioned this last week too, but uh, before I moved to Greenville, my, my first work after seminary as a minister was as a campus minister, and it was first in Mississippi. My wife and I are both actually from Mississippi, and one of the great things about the job was, especially before children showed up, was that my, you know, my, my ministry work was on the student schedule, so it was during the week, and I really had my Sundays free. I didn't have work responsibilities, and so something that I got to do was to uh, preach in a lot of little churches in Mississippi and, and little towns. It'd be, they may not have a pastor or pastor was out. And so I got to have a, a file at home of bulletins from these little country churches in Mississippi. But I usually get there early and I'd meet with the, the leaders, the elders. And uh, in little Mississippi churches, the elders are usually elders, you know, like they're old men. And so we'd be going through the service, and I would ask them what part I was supposed to, to play. And sometimes they would help me do it. One of the older men would help lead the service. But, but sometimes one of them would say some version of, Brian, we would just kind of like you to lead the entire service if that's all right. And I always felt hamstrung in those situations because part of that was the, the prayer, you know, to, to pray for the congregation. And I didn't know them. And it was always that feeling of there's some big need here that I'm not going to know about or some trial that someone's going through or somebody's really sick. It's just you know, it's something that the whole church family knows about, and I don't know to pray about it because I don't know them because they're, they're strangers. And that actually is pertinent to looking at this passage. This passage is about a prayer. And I mentioned this last week, but I want to keep this before you, that Apparently, Paul had never met, or at least had not yet met, these Christians in Colossae. Apparently, what happened when, when he was ministering the gospel himself in what we call Asia Minor, he was in the city of Ephesus, and a man named Epaphras heard the gospel and, and believed in Jesus and took the gospel to Colossae and shared the gospel, and people became Christians, and a church started and uh, word about that church got back to Paul, and he's in prison, and he writes this congregation. But apparently he's never met these folks. They are strangers. And so here, here's the interesting thing. He not only prays for strangers. He says, I pray for you all the time. But he actually says, I'm going to tell you exactly what I pray for you. And, and I'm going to mention this again, but th this prayer echoes his description of his prayers for other churches in the New Testament. In other words, apparently, there were a few things that were a big deal to Paul that you've got to pray for these things for local churches. 
And, and I'd like to think about, as a local church, what does that mean for us? Because, you know, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And a lot of times, what we pray for is just the temporal stuff. You know, the kind of stuff that's here today and gone tomorrow. And that might be because our heart is full of temporal stuff. And Paul keeps praying for big, ultimate things that are largely invisible. So what does he pray? Let's look at this. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, there are things that we need that we don't even know that we need. And the things that we do know that we need, when we pray them, we're not informing you, we're not teaching you, we're just saying to you what we've learned that we need. But help us to understand what we need, and help us to ask for what we need, Uh, even use this morning. And if we come in tired, or beat down, or distracted, or lonely, help us to hear you, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me say this again, and actually if you're in a community group, the notes that we'll send out for the community groups have a little bit more about this. When you look at the letters that are attributed to Paul in the New Testament, something that you'll see over and over and over is that he'll write a church, he'll say, I'm so thankful for you. Even with people he's never met, I'm just thankful you're out there. I heard that you believe in Jesus and you love each other. I'm so thankful for you and I pray for you and here's what I pray. And over and over and over, it's some version of, I pray that you will have a certain kind of knowledge or knowledge and wisdom or knowledge and discernment. And you need to understand that when Paul grew up Jewish, Paul was, I mean, not just steeped, he was immersed and fed on what we call the Old Testament, for him, the Law and the Prophets. When it talks about knowing, knowing is not just data. Learning and knowledge is not just data transfer. But think about it this way, Adam knew Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. To know is to relate deeply, it's to commune with, it's to be intimate with. And the thing that Paul keeps praying, some version of, and it's explicit here to the Colossians, the big ask that he makes of God when he thinks about these Colossians he's never met is, God, let them 
know your will. Let me, let me read how he says it. Verse 9, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And for what it's worth, that phrase wisdom and understanding, for somebody who grew up with the law and the prophets, that's what King David told his son Solomon, you're going to need. If you're going to lead these people and build the house of God, build the temple, you're going to need wisdom and understanding. And God comes to David's son and says, I'll give you anything you want. What do you want? Instead of asking for money or conquering enemies, Solomon says, I need wisdom and understanding. It's it's a getting it and knowing how to navigate life and seeing the big picture and even seeing what's invisible that you can't learn on your own. It's a God-given knowledge and wisdom. And Paul says, Colossians, I pray that for you all the time, that you'll be filled up with the knowledge of God's will. So if you have that, what flows out of that? What flows out of the knowledge of God's will? And, of course, it's sermon points. Now, well, there's sermon points about what actually does flow out of of that knowledge of his will. So let's frame it this way. It's knowing what to do. And I've heard somebody define wisdom as, you know, wisdom is not just smarts or intelligence or, again, mastering data. It's, it's competence or competency for how to navigate the complexities of life. That's wisdom. So knowing what to do and then knowing whose you are. Knowing what to do and knowing whose you are. So, all right, what to do. And let's look at a couple of things. Let's think of it in terms of comprehensive obedience and continuing obedience. Comprehensive obedience and continuing obedience. Look at the language at the beginning of verse 10 about how comprehensive his prayer is about like how much of you will know God, how much of you will serve God, how much of your life will show that you're in a relationship with God. First part of verse 10. So as to walk, by the way, very Jewish way of saying it, very Hebrew way of saying it, life is a walk. Life is a journey. Step, step, step. Paul loves to describe your life as your walk. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work. Now, in another one of his letters, Paul says this, your body, your physical living of life right now, is a sacrifice to God when you belong to Jesus. In other words, it's not like, well, this little particular part of my life, like church or a missions trip or year-end giving or or whatever version of that, those aren't just the little individual offerings that I give up. My whole life is to be my offering to Jesus. And he says, what I want, what I pray for, is that you'll know God's will in such a way that your whole life is pleasing to him. I heard a great uh, anecdote from, a, from an older acquaintance, and it was about two Christmases ago. He has grandchildren now, and he, his two granddaughters came to his wife, their grandmother, and said, Grandma, we know what we're getting granddaddy for Christmas. 
And she said, ah, what are you getting granddaddy for Christmas? And they said, we're getting him a doll. (laughs) Now, that would be a classic example of where the offering is fully pleasing to you, (laughs) the giver, you know, but not so much to the recipient, although I'm sure he smiled and loved his doll from his granddaughters. But, But you think about Think about the way that we get up over our life and try to manage our life or structure our life. And I'm going to preface this by saying I'm a big fan of intentionality and plans and goals and some infrastructure to your life. Big fan, recommend it. And here's what we can be prone to do is to say, you know, here's like the different buckets of my life. And there's like my friend bucket. I need, I need folks in my life that spur me on and they're a good influence and I want to become like them and be challenged by them and enjoy them. Uh, here's my work bucket. Now that work bucket might be I'm taking care of kids or it might be I'm running a business or whatever. That's my vocation, my calling. That's what I'm doing all week. And then here's my take care of my body bucket. I'm trying to drink more water this year and eat right and exercise and all that. And there's my spiritual bucket. I'm, I'm trying to read the Bible more and I'm in church and blah, blah, blah. And to kind of think like, you know, what I want here is I, I need work-life balance and I, and I want things in the right ratio. And I really just kind of want to get my hands around my life. And what that can end up being is a, an approach to living your life that's fully pleasing to us. And the question that Paul wants us to ask is, but what is pleasing to Jesus? And I kind of alluded to this last week, but I'll bring it up again, is that the more controlling I get about buckets or containers or whatever you want to call them, again, I'm all for plans. I'm all for being intentional. I think you even have to have healthy boundaries of certain types in your life. However, the more protective I get of my different buckets, the needs of other people become a nuisance. And the overwhelming numbers of people out there who don't know Jesus or need something from me or who are lonely or who are broken become a nuisance and an obstacle to my buckets being the way I like them. And it really is as if Paul is saying... You know, I bet that God's will is something a lot more glorious and a lot more beautiful than your buckets being the way you want to craft them. But maybe what that's going to look like is you're going to suffer more than you thought you were, or that you thought you would. Uh, Or people are going to come into your life that you would not, not naturally have let into your life. And that thing in you that's wanting to say, maintain control, do not lay down your life, do not give away your life to others. Do not take up your cross and suffer. That he wants you, he wants you to buy in and follow him. And so you're going to take up a cross and you're going to lay down your life and there's going to be more joy. And there's going to be more life. But what he wants is a life that's fully pleasing to him. And you have to know God's will to live that way. So there's comprehensive obedience and there's continued obedience. I won't say as much on this, but look in verse 11. And the setup 
is pretty striking. He says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, God's glorious might. And now Paul is a man that grew up with the account of Mount Sinai, of the living God appearing on this mountain, this mountain shaking with earthquakes and fire and smoke going up to heaven and the sound of the trumpet. The overwhelming, majestic, terrifying presence of God. Uh, he, he has the accounts of God splitting rivers and splitting the sea. Of God's Shekinah glory coming into a temple and the priest can't even stay in it because the glory of God is there. And he takes those categories and says, all right, I pray that, that you'll be strengthened with all of that power according to all of that glorious might so that what will happen? For all endurance and patience with joy. And some of you who are older than me have helped me understand this. Because some of you who are older than me, which used to be, well, anyway. What you've helped me see is that one of the struggles that we've got to be honest about as we get older, if we profess to follow Jesus and walk behind him, is that two things are going to get more and more tempting the further we go. Is give up or just be joyless. You know, either, either it's just, it's so hard. I have said no to so much fun, I'm tired of saying no to fun. And I've, I've been so involved with other people's needs. I'm tired of being involved with other people's, me, other people's needs. It's me time. And to just, you know, functionally to kind of just give up throwing the towel or despair. Or to sort of retain some form of knowing God and following him. I'm still in church. I'm still reading my Bible. I'm still with Christians. I still do Christian stuff. And I have lost joy. It is so dutiful, and I'm just grinding it out. And you know what that is called? That is called a religious person. And Paul prays, I want you to know, not just data, I want you to know what to do. I want you to know the will of God so that when, so that, let's put it this way, one day you will end well. Not a lot of people end well. He's saying, I'm praying that that power that was on Mount Sinai, that power that Isaiah saw seated on the throne high and lifted up, that that power is going to work in you so that at the end you still have great joy that Jesus rescued you and that you get to know him. So that's a pretty great prayer. I mean, that's what we need to know what to do. But what's up underneath that? And I think we have, to, we have to end on this note. It's to know whose you are. There's a lot of things that we need to do. I mean, that's even part of the mission of our church. There's very particular things that we need to do in the city of Greenville, that we need to do downtown if we're going to be who we said we were going to be. Things you need to do with your friends or family or coworkers. But why do we do what we do? We do what we do because we love what we love. Or we love who we love. 
Paul says, I want you to know whose you are. Look at verse 10. He says this just in passing, but it's, I want to end on this note. It says, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Not a knowing about God, not being the most widely read theological guy or girl in the room, the best answerer of questions in community group, but I mean someone who knows God. I mean, the night that Jesus was arrested and then crucified the next day, he prayed a prayer that we have access to. It's in the Gospel of John. And at the beginning of that prayer, he actually says this. He says to his father, Father, this is eternal life, that they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That eternal life is knowing him. We've said this before, but let me say it again. When God crafted Adam, and it presents it as a historic account, not a myth, when he crafted him from the dirt, from the ground, he breathed life into him, which means the first thing the first human being ever saw was God's face. And we never got over it. We're made to know him. And I don't know where all of you are spiritually. You might be here and you know that you know that you're not on the same page with him and you feel it. However that's expressing itself, you feel it. You feel it because you're made for him. What does Paul want us to know about God? That covers a lot of ground. But let's think about a couple of things just briefly. It's a big deal to Paul that he wants you to know that God is his people's father. Uh, This is not in the bulletin, but in verse 2, I mean, just right at the beginning of the letter, he calls God our father. And we talked about that last week, that that was a big deal for devout Jewish Pharisee background Paul to say to a Gentile group of people he's never met, God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is our father. Then in verse 3, he says, God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in our passage, he says, it's funny, he just told him, here's what I'm praying for. And then he goes back to thanksgiving, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. One theologian named J.I. Packer said this, you can find out about a person's spiritual growth and maturity by how much they make of this fact that God is their father. And I've asked this question from up here before, but let me pose it again. And, and this is where you may need objectivity in your life. We need people to speak into our lives and see things that we can't see about ourselves. You may have to ask a friend or a, another church member or a family member this question. If you pray and there are people who hear you pray, it would be worth asking them, do you hear me call God Father? And there's just all the, you know, Scripture's just rich with ways that we can speak to God. We can call Him God or Lord or King or Creator 
or master or the hope of Israel. I mean, the Psalms are full of those. I'd say use them all. But the one that was so near and dear to Jesus that he built it into what we call the Lord's Prayer is that we begin, in the original it's actually the first word, Father. Out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. I can have great theology, but if deep down he's not really my dad. He's boss and he's king of the universe and he's the trinity and he wrote the Bible and he made everything. But like really, really where the rubber meets the road, he doesn't really like me and I'm not actually in his family. It comes out. And man, it's so important to Paul as an apostle to say, I want you to increase in the knowledge of God. God is his people's father. He's Jesus' father, and he is our father. And to some of you, that's a wonderful connotation. And to some of you, it's not father, dad. And if it's the latter, you need to understand the glories of God being the father that you did not have. And he's our deliverer. Look at verse 13. And this is great because it almost sounds like at first he's talking about Jesus, but he just referred to the Father. So when he says he, that's God the Father. Verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption. A little little, uh, downtown, walk down Main Street here. Main Street, right around the spot where uh, South Main and North Main meet, there's two statues right by Main Street. On that side of the street is Vardry Macby, you know, one of the first settlers in this area. He used to live across the street where the water building is. On this side of Main Street, there's a man sitting on a bench by a top hat. Who is it? Joel Poinsett. And... uh, He's an amazing guy. I've never read a biography of him. I, when I was thinking about using his, this example, I thought, I need to read a book about Joel Poinsett and pepper you with more illustrations about him. <laughs> but really, I mean, he was a scientist. He was a South Carolina congressman. He was secretary of war. He was, I guess, the equivalent of our ambassador to Mexico. But there's this one thing that we mostly remember him for. He saw this plant that was indigenous to Mexico And it's just kind of impeccably red and green and perfect for Christmas. And he transferred some of them from Mexico to the States. And now they're everywhere. They're in their offices and buildings in your homes. They, They don't naturally, they wouldn't naturally have shown up there. He transferred them. We don't naturally show up right with God in his kingdom. We don't naturally show up in relationship with Him, guilt-free, reconciled, knowing Him. And, And if you don't know what I'm about to say, you don't know God. God loves to take people who don't know Him, and they're not reconciled to Him. They're in rebellion against Him. 
it's a whole domain of rebellion and transfer them out and transfer them into the kingdom of the son whom he loves. That's what God is like. And Paul says, I want you to increase in the knowledge of God who loves to do that because the only way Paul was an apostle is because God is like that. And he loves to do that. Do you believe that God fundamentally is for you? Or is he just the boss? Do you really believe that God is for you? That he reveals himself as father to sinful children and deliverer of those who are not yet his children? Paul prays, I want you to increase in knowing him as he actually is. That will change you. That will change you. You'll know his will when you know him. And I want to end with just something out of my own life that kind of gave me a window into this principle of the behavior changes and you know what to do when you know, when you know the person. Something I've struggled with historically in school was procrastination, putting stuff off to the last minute. And especially in high school, I just, I wouldn't start on some big project really until the acid secretion in my stomach had tripled, I would say. And then it was like, okay, time to start. And it really caught up with me. My my freshman year of college had freshman comp and, you know, we did a few little papers here and there, but then you get to where you write the big research paper And I knew what I wanted to write, had a great idea for it, and I just put it off, and I put it off, and I put it off, and I got so behind, and I got so ashamed of it, I stopped going to class. That professor actually called my father. It was the first time that had ever happened. I just put it off. I've been meaning to bring this up, but uh, (laughs) procrastination joke, just kidding. But... Fast forward to the last year I was a, a student, a full-time student, my last year of seminary, and um, we had a, an, a winter term. Some schools do that, you know, between fall and spring, and it's, it's sort of like a summer school schedule, three weeks, more hours, just one thing, intense. And it was a class on missions, foreign missions. And the professor throws a lot of material at you. And I remember the joke was that, you know, we said, what's going to be on the final exam? And he said, you must be thoroughly familiar with all your notes. Oh, wow. Don't give away too much on, on, on that. I feel like you just gave us the cheat sheet for the whole test. But I'm happy to say I crushed that exam. Crushed it. I memorized essentially the entire body of notes. And the reason I don't feel very prideful standing up here and telling you how great I did is the reason. And I am honestly telling you the reason is it was the first year I was married. And I'm not trying to elicit an awe from you. I'm telling you that to say, Dana never, I, I have zero memory of her ever cracking the whip over me about school or a deadline or a project. But as I knew her, I thought, I don't want to be I want to live in a way that's worthy of being her husband. 
so as to walk in a manner worthy of being her husband. It was the relationship. It wasn't the deadlines or her saying, meet this deadline. or It was knowing her. Paul says, I, this thing that I pray for you and I pray for the churches is to know God's will because you know God. And you live not for yourself so that you'll be pleased with yourself, but that he would be pleased with you. Uh, there is nothing greater we could pray for a local church. And so let's pray that right now for ourselves. Let's pray. Father, again, we don't inform you of something you don't know, but we want to say to you as we're together, as we're gathered in Jesus' name, that we are made to know you and we want to know your will. We want you to give us the spiritual wisdom and understanding that we don't naturally have. So show us what to do. Show us whose you are. Grow us in knowing you as God and Father and Deliverer and change us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.